Hi, my name is John Kim. I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth many years ago, and I've been documenting my journey ever since, sharing my life lessons and revelations. I believe in casual over clinical, with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. So as you know, my podcast is mostly short form. I bring things to street level, half documentation, and by documentation, me sitting on a toilet talking into my phone. And then the other half, uh, some science, some psychobabble, things I learned in therapy school, tips, tools, mindset, etc. But now I'm introducing what I call the Angry Therapist Presents series. And these series are uh, from other experts, people that I admire and learn have learned from, um, doing what they do best, which is going to be more long form. So if I'm in a shark glass, series is in a wine glass. And today, I want to present to you friend and trauma expert, Dr. MC McDonald. She's dedicated her life to trauma. And she has a new book called Unbroken. You should go pick it up. This is the trauma tapes. And these are real stories as she dissects the trauma through her lens She's a university teacher, she's a coach, she's an author, she's got so much to offer. You're going to get so much out of the next eight episodes, and we're going to release these once a week. Enjoy the trauma tapes. We're going to call this episode Aces and Pieces. We'll see why. Okay. (laughs) TBD. Okay. Okay, this everyone's all excited to listen. Go ahead. (laughs) So this letter is from How to Make Sense of All of This. Uh, Dear Trauma Tapes, I'm not sure where to begin. I started going to therapy to work on my disorganized attachment a few years ago. And instead of working on that, my therapist made me take the ACE, Adverse Childhood Experiences quiz, and my score was surprisingly high. I'd never considered that I had experienced trauma until I was 30 years old. I was diagnosed with PTSD. I started trauma therapy. It was hard, and I regressed in a lot of ways. I learned how to feel sadness for myself. Before, I could only feel it for other people because I was so emotionally detached from my own experiences. I feel the depression was useful in a way, and I moved past it. Reflecting on my childhood, I realized how much I have hidden from myself, my previous partners and peers. This is the part of my story I purposely leave out because it still hurts. Both of my parents struggled with untreated mental illness and addiction. They had their own traumatic childhoods. My mom was removed from an extremely neglectful home at five years old where she had been starved and abused. She was adopted by my grandparents. Some of her only memories from that time involved eating rotten lettuce from the trash but feeling happy about it. My dad was one of eight and had an abusive and alcoholic father. My older sister became abusive towards me. We lived in sketchy places, campers that smelled like urine without electricity or running water. Head lice was never properly treated, and I had it for months at a time. A single wide trailer with nine other people. We moved a lot. For the first 10 years of my life, we dealt with addiction, domestic violence, incarceration, suicide, physical and sexual abuse. I never felt completely safe at home, but it was what I knew. I dreaded getting off the school bus many days. I've carried a lot of shame about not having a normal family. I dissociated through a lot of that time and didn't fully experience the emotional effects of it directly. 
I think that's how I held up so well for so long. My mother's childhood trauma was projected onto us. Food was strictly controlled, and there were nights I had to sleep at the dinner table if I didn't finish my meal. I would have to eat it the next morning for punishment. From the moment my sister was born, my mother recalls feeling a demonic spirit in her. It was hard to watch my mother treat my sister poorly. It breaks my heart to think about it now. I don't hold any grudges against my family. I know that they were suffering in their own ways and doing the best they could, even if it wasn't always right. My dad was hilarious, my mom is strong, and my sister is incredibly creative. I have traumatic memories, but I also have fond memories of them too. I felt safe at school, and I had teachers who cared about me and showed me love I didn't see at home. I made friends easily. I made good grades. I had an existential crisis in second grade and decided I wouldn't treat other people the way I was being treated at home. I would befriend any kid who was not fitting in well on the playground and merge them into my friend group. After all of this, what I remember the most vividly is the faces of everyone who was kind to me and how safe they made me feel. Things drastically got better, though. My parents divorced and my dad moved to Nigeria. My mom bought a house for us. She worked 80-hour weeks and we didn't see her much, but she was doing what she had to do. We felt like we had won the lottery. The house had heating and air, and it was nicer than anything we had lived in before. I made a friend from a more stable family, and they would take me on vacations to go skiing and camping. I got to see what a normal family was like. I experienced a lot of amazing things I normally wouldn't have. She's still one of my best friends to this day. On my 13th birthday, my mom gave me a job bussing tables at a restaurant she managed. I loved working and having responsibility. I spent more time with my mom and sister at work. My sister had a lot of behavioral issues. She became addicted to drugs, went to jail several times, and struggled a lot. The obvious effects of trauma started to show up in my life around 17, with flashbacks, nightmares, trouble focusing, sleeping, and eating. I wasn't sure what to make of it, so I didn't tell anyone. I kept busy, and life went on. The less obvious effects were attention and memory issues. I have trouble locating things like belongings and physical locations. In relationships, I struggle to form secure attachment. One of my biggest triggers is having someone express how much they love or care for me. It's really hard for me to hear it even now. I don't have a great sense of the future. When I think about a five-year goal, it involves not being homeless. Even now, writing this, I feel scared that someone is going to see me as someone who is irreparably damaged or broken. Trauma has fractured my sense of belonging. I would let people get close, but not too close. I struggled to express my emotions. I was a very quiet child, and my home had enough emotions by the time I arrived. I don't want people to feel like they have to carry my pain. I do bring it to my therapist, but I'm afraid if I open up to a partner, I'll just start crying and never stop. And I also realize withholding my vulnerability prevents me from creating the deep relationships I desperately desire. I'm learning how to do this with friends, but I feel like it's much harder in a relationship. I have an irrational fear of being trapped in a relationship I won't be able to escape. I'm afraid of passing trauma off to a partner and causing them similar pain I've experienced. In fact, I know I've hurt previous partners with my withdrawal and avoidance. It's a pattern I do not want to play out again. I'm working on all these things, and I know they will take time. I hope one day I will become a great partner to someone and have a healthy relationship I am proud of. 
This is one of my biggest goals in therapy and what pushes me to keep healing. Despite my adverse childhood experiences, I've also been incredibly fortunate the last 20 years. I have a successful business, fulfilling friendships, and a beautiful home I have worked hard for. I have found a lot of tools to cope, throwing myself into one hobby or obsession after another. They bring me joy. I have a lot of gratitude for where I am in life. And with that, have guilt too, because I know most children who grew up like me won't be this fortunate. It is so rare to break these cycles. I see this in my line of work in child welfare. I try to make sense of this all. Did I deserve to make it out? Why not someone else? I struggle with a lot of these existential questions, wondering where my place is in all of this and why. I would like to make my life one worth living and know that my suffering meant something. I guess my question is how to make sense of all of this. Oh, goodness. Heartbreaking story. What are your first um, initial thoughts? Um, the, the thing that jumps out at me the most is I'm, I'm, and it makes me emotional is that she says in second grade, she had this epiphany where she made a decision that she was going to do better Mm -hmm. than what she knew and that she was going to actively Mm -hmm. try to be a, um, a safe haven for kids who, were feeling, uh, you know, uh, that they were on the outside. And I, I'm just, I think that's so beautiful. And I think, and I wonder where that comes from, because I think when you hear some of these stories, people often talk about something similar to that, that they, something struck them mm-hmm. and that they knew that they were not going to continue the cycle, that they mm-hmm. were going to live differently. Yeah. So I'm fascinated. And I, I think that really needs to be celebrated and um, harnessed somehow, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and it sounds like she's still doing that. She's still, mm-hmm. you know, came from all this stuff, realizes the, the scope of it and um, how it's affected her, but still wants to be that bright light. Mm-hmm. You know, there's also a lot of things in here that I, I don't know what a disorganized attachment is. Mm, yeah. And um the ACE quiz I, I recently was learned a little bit about in the um, the Oprah, the new Oprah drama book with Dr. Bruce Perry. They um, they were on a podcast with Brene Brown and they spoke about the ACE quiz. So there are a couple of things I need clarification on. Okay. We can do that for sure. I have lots to say about ACEs. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the second grade thing hit, hit me too, of course, because it's like, there's always these things that stick out in someone's narrative, you know, that they take to be like, Oh, you know, I had an existential crisis in second grade and I decided I was going to be different and blah, blah, blah. And they just kind of move on. You're like, hold on. Right. Like that's remarkable. It's remarkable. It's also really crushing and heartbreaking, right? You're not supposed to have to have an existential crisis in second grade. Right. You're supposed to be like skipping around and eating popsicles. And I don't know you know? <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to be protected and safe. And yeah. 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 So I yeah. like, I think that's be. There's this concept of um, these pivotal life moments in psychology, which are um, it's actually relevant for bra- your brain structure because you have a moment where you're sort of faced with a fork in the road mm-hmm. and you can either go this way or that way. And this way, the left side is positive and the, the right side is negative, not because of the side of the brain, just because I'm making a 
uh, you know, gesture <laughs> and, um, they, those lay the tracks for like who we become. Yeah. And you, you have pivotal life experiences through the whole course of your life. But, um, the ones when you're younger are so interesting because you often don't have language yet to to narrate what was going on or what's happening in the moment, maybe after the fact, but, um, that sounds like it was a pivotal life moment and it's, it is a really beautiful one. And I'm also sorry that you had it. You know what I mean? And when you're, when those things happen, when you're younger, I mean, you're not in therapy, you're not working through that with someone, you're coming to that completely on your own, right? which is makes it even more stunning. Right. While everyone around you is like twirling and like, right. Not, you know, not doing that same thing. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I just, the amount of resilience in this story is like astonishing, like, and I think this is the answer for how to, well, this is a short answer. There's a lot of different ways you can make sense of this, but make your story one of resilience instead of one of shame, because that is what your story is. Right. I see nothing in there to be ashamed of. I see a lot of things to be proud of in terms of resilience, you know, resilience so, and, and forgiveness and understanding. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, and that's you know. the, the, the fact that you have, you, you know, you've done tons of work to integrate this. And the fact that you can hold these like opposing facts of your childhood next to each other, that you had so much abuse and neglect and that you can still find things about your parents that are loving that you love about them is an, that's a remarkable, I mean, that is resilience being able to hold two contradictory beliefs at the same time that that's what resilience means. So you've done this work to integrate it already, which is amazing. But it sounds like she's still struggling. Yeah. Stuck. Yeah. So, okay. Let's talk about the attachment stuff first. And then we can talk about the ACEs and their counter, which are PCEs, positive childhood experiences, which I'm pronouncing pieces, but because I think that's cool. I don't know if that's how they're pronounced because I've never heard it out loud. Um, it's only been around since 2019. So um but let's talk about disorganized attachment first. So there are these different attachment styles that we know. Um, the reason we know, I know I've said this before, but the reason that we know about attachment styles is because of the study of developmental trauma. So anything that we talk about when we talk about attachment is in some way related to trauma. So you have secure attachment, which is when you feel safely attached. Um, and then you have anxious attachment, um, avoidant attachment, and then disorganized attachment. It's talked about much less often than the other, um, than the other kinds of attachment, but it's essentially like the way that I think about it is that it's sort of like both anxious and avoidant just mixed. So you might become very close with someone and then, um, kind of banish them from your life. So you have the anxious attachment, the, like the kind of grasping for them and then the kind of jettisoning them from your life. That's the avoidant piece. So you can talk about disorganized attachment as children or as adults. So in children, you might, um, some of the signs would be that you fear close proximity to your parents because, you know, they might be physically or emotionally abusive. And then you might have a mixture of avoidant and resistant or aggressive behaviors around the parent. Um, You feel no sense of safety or very little sense of safety in your relationships. You have a complete inability to self-regulate your emotion Um, And you seem dazed, dissociated, or confused. 
as an adult, you might fear close proximity or intimacy in relationships. You fear showing vulnerability. You might have extreme rage or anger response to confrontation or threat. Um, you might express little or no empathy with others or little or no understanding or of personal boundaries. So that's just kind of a rundown of what that looks like as children and, and as an adult. But essentially the idea, I think the important takeaway whenever we're talking about attachment is, okay, so I'm not feeling safe and secure. How can I get to a place where I'm feeling safe and secure? Mm-hmm. And I really, the first step here is to banish language that you are disorganized, attached, or that okay. you are avoidantly attached because we all have different attachment styles and different situations. And often our attachment style is a result of the circumstances and the situation and not us. Right. So it's to, to lay blame completely on ourselves and say, this is how I'm attached is a problem. However, that being said, I can totally see why someone who's had a background like this would have a tough time with vulnerability and attachment, right? Your first lessons in the world were that vulnerable, intimate relationships are unsafe. Right. And so like that 100% makes sense that that would be difficult. And, and I say this with a lot of hope, it might always be a little difficult. I think if we're awake and alive, it's difficult. I think connecting vulnerably to other humans is the scariest thing we do as humans. Yeah. Under any circumstances, no matter what your background is. Right. Yeah. So like, just maybe gently put the pathology down (laughs) and think more in what do you want safety to look like for you? Because I think one of the reasons that that the, the pathology becomes a problem is that it's too internalized. And so we think like, okay, if I want a secure attachment, I have to fix myself. And I hear, she's not saying this directly, but I hear this a little bit in the, in the letter of like, when I fix myself, I'll be able to have a partner and I'll be able to be a partner. Right. And I think it's like, no, you have to fix yourself in partnership. <laughs> and it's also not about fixing yourself, right? It's about learning from someone else and from a connection that people are safe and intimacy is safe. And it's okay to have needs in that situation that are different than someone else's. So if you've had violence in your childhood, you're going to have a different idea of physical safety and boundaries than someone who hasn't. And that's just a fact. That doesn't mean there is no fixing. There's no self-work. There's nothing you can do to eradicate that. It's part of your life. Right. But I think we can let go of the shame around it and then just address what you need but I worry that while you're in steeped in this language of like, I am this kind of attachment and this, that it it's, it'll be harder to get there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. I think that nothing challenges you more than being in a relationship and to um, think that you can become a self-contained unit before you enter yeah. into one and that everything is going to be okay mm-hmm. is, um, folly in a way, because we are all, I think you've said, or you've quoted undone by one another. It was like Judith Butler. And like, you know, when I think about, I always bring it back to television, but that couples therapy thing and, you know, how things are going to come up in a relationship that are going to make you feel a certain way, make the other person feel a certain way. And you have to be willing to work on those together. You, you're, you cannot become a whole being, a, a self-contained entity yeah. before you enter into a relationship. Totally. You know, there will be things that happen all along the way that you have to be willing to face together. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. 
100%. So the work is not all on you. Right. And I do think like this idea, I'm obsessed with this idea of like deserving, like I'm I'm sensing myself, I'm going to fall down a rabbit hole with like, where does this come from? And why do we make our, why do we put everything in that frame of like, I deserve this and not that we do it with food. We do it with relationships. We do it with success. We do it with like money. We do it with, and it is like crushing when we don't have the right sense of what we deserve. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because it becomes a filter through which we see and, and treat everything. But there's something in here about this idea that I have that moral injury cuts the other way. Right. Mm-hmm. So like we, uh, when we study moral injury, a lot of the time we're talking about when someone has a, a terrible experience and they learn for the first time that the world is bad. And then that makes them sort of rethink all of their moral structures that help orient them in the world. You're having the opposite experience, which I think is just as legitimate and just as real. It's just that it hasn't been studied yet, which is that you've had the experience that the world is bad first. And you're now right. learning in these little, in these relationships and these friendships that you can have safety And that then makes, that kind of shatters your moral structures that you use to orient yourself in the world. And so there's pain in that, I think, and grief, not just in like, okay, I didn't have this in my childhood. There's obviously the grief of that as well, but also you have to kind of reorient yourself and recalibrate everything in order to relate. And that's hard. That's a lot of work. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was thinking that too. Like, is it not better or worse, but it's a very different experience. Like you said, to have never had it. Yeah. You know, versus having had it and lost it. Right. It's just as disorienting, I think. Right. Right. Like, and so the, there's this idea that like part, I think part of the question of like, how do I make sense of it is like, how do I figure out how I deserve this? And I think that's like the wrong question. I'm so tempted to dig in against deservingness, but I think that's the wrong way. I think it's the wrong question. You know what I mean? What do you think she deserving a relationship, deserving a connection, deserving, deserving of love, attunement. Yeah. Secure, really safety attachment, like all these things that like, I feel like are at stake in her letter. You know what I mean? Cause she asked the question at one point, like, did I deserve to get out when other kids didn't or that kind of thing? Did I deserve to make it out? Why not someone else? I struggle a lot with these existential questions, wondering where my place is in all this and why. I think sometimes we ask our question, these questions as a way to like, not just be where we are. You know, it sounds like her life is worth living. Right. And that her suffering did mean something, you know? It sounds like, she also says at one point, which I thought was interesting, um, I don't want to pass this trauma on. Like it's yeah. a hot potato. Like, you right. know, you, this is who you are. This is your, you know, right. Like we've talked about in the past, this, this would be like cutting off a limb. You know, right. you can't, this is right. your story. And right. it's a remarkable, yeah, heartbreaking, but beautiful story. Mm-hmm. And you don't, it's not like a virus that you give to someone else or, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's who you are. Like, I, th- I think trying to make sense of it is, trying to separate it out in a way. Totally. Right. And not, and rather than integrating it. Right. And it sounds like she's gotten comfortable with her narrative in certain situations, Yeah, but is still holding it close to the vest, which is understandable. You know, I mean, you don't want to present with that all the time, Mm -hmm. but in my own life, some of the most beautiful moments have been when either I have felt safe enough to share or someone else has felt safe enough to share with me. Uh And that's, 
a connection that is just beautiful and, and yeah. so meaningful. So yeah. I think when you, when you begin to not see it as a separate part of you, but see it as a, a really beautiful, important part of yourself, I, I don't yeah. know. I'm rambling, but no, no, no. I think it's like the, because of not in spite of, right. You are who you are because of what you went through, not in spite of what you went through. And when you right. can frame it that way, you can say like, this is my story and I can own it. And it's, right. and it doesn't. And, and what that means is that you have to kind of figure out how to banish the shame, bring it all together, integrate it and take the shame. And, you know, that's, that has no place here because there's nothing to be ashamed of, you know? Yeah. And, and it also sounds like what kind of banishing it and not talking about it or facing it is what enabled her to survive. Right. So that is something that worked for you then right. for a long time. Yeah. And is probably the reason you are where you are right now, Yeah, but it's might not be serving you any longer. Totally. Yeah. Or you might just want to be able to choose in which situations you're able to own it and which situations you're able to kind of tell people versions of the story or not the whole thing, because, you know, you don't have to let everyone in so intimately, you know what I mean? Right. There's a fear, I think that is very deep in this letter that, that you are somehow like secretly broken. And I mean, like there's a hairline fracture at the center of everything. And that your, your, your real fear is that you'll cross some threshold and just break apart. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say that if that was going to happen, it would have happened already and it is not going to happen. Right. I know that, you know, that fear is an irrational one. The fear that you'll be trapped and, and won't be able to escape in a relationship is not an irrational fear. It's actually a completely genius adaptation that your mind is providing for you because of what you saw and went through as a child. Yeah. That makes sense. Adapt around that, right? Have that be a part of your negotiation in your relationship. I'm worried that I'm going to feel trapped. I need to have an amount of space that feels like mine. Let yeah. that be a thing, right? Why is that not legitimate? And also maybe um, look for a partner who's who will be able to open up and who will be able to mm-hmm. share and, and be available, which is, we should all want that in a partner. I mean, that, you know. Yeah, that should be a, a, a non-negotiable for everyone, but you have reached a, an extraordinary uh, level of self-awareness and understanding and, and compassion and uh, look for that in someone else. Yeah, totally. You know? And I think, and, and bring these things in these make a list. Here's, here's the practicals, right? Make a list. What do you need to feel safe? Don't judge the things. If you need a separate room, that is your own. If you need a separate apartment and you can never live with anybody, totally fine. Make that mm-hmm. your thing. These are my non-negotiables. This is my list. And bring those in as if you're talking about like food preferences or like allergies or like things that nobody would ever question, right? I don't like tomatoes. Okay, cool. I won't put tomatoes in your salad. Like that's not a big deal, right? Like right. we need to treat these things the same way. So there's that. And it will also give you the psychological like feeling of like, okay, now I have done the thing to make sure that I am safe in a certain way. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I have set up, I know what my boundaries and limits are. Um, and then when it comes to like the sense of future and stability and stuff like that, you know, we've talked a lot about the Mohawk of self-awareness and the, um, the hope circuit in the brain. These are the parts of the brain where you need to be establishing connections, which you already are, because you said you're doing lots of different hobbies 
And so you're getting to know yourself and building your home and your life for yourself and all that kind of stuff. When it comes to connecting to hope, that's probably going to be a lot harder because you didn't have the luxury of dreaming as a child, which I think is maybe the most tragic part of this, you know, like learn how to do that as kids. And then we fall away from it and can pick it back up. But if you didn't learn how to do that as a kid, you have to learn how to do it as an adult. And I think like low stakes future planning and stability imagining is the is a good idea here because you don't have to make your imagination look like everybody else's where you're imagining this is what my retirement is going to look like and I'm going to be and here's the next 80 years of my life and whatever. But you can plant little seeds in the future um, and like low stakes things that you can look forward to. Um, that are two years out or one year out and try to like expand your brain in that way. Right. There's this, um, this idea of specificity when it comes to brain changing, if you want to change something in your brain, you have to, you have to actually like be specific and activate that part of your brain. So instead of saying, I can't imagine the future and now I feel shame about it. Okay. I can't imagine the future. How can I, in tiny little ways, exercise that part of my brain, just like you would practice an instrument you're learning, right? Because you won't be able to make that leap in your brain unless you exercise that part. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That's also something that you might be able to, you know, depending on these um, relationships that you have in your life, be able to lean on someone a little for that. Totally. hundred percent. Yeah. You can say like, Hey, this is, you know, I, I have that. I, I, I have a hard time planning for the future, thinking of the future. And I I know that that's something that I struggle with. Yeah. So I kind of lean on other people in my life to kind of help me with that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great adaptation and it's co-regulation because you're kind of using the hope circuit in someone else's brain to be like, Oh wait, I have that too. And you start imagining things and then, and you can do that. We talked about this a long time ago, but if you can't imagine real things for yourself, you can't imagine fantastical things. Right. And you're still turning on that part of your brain and that then you can eventually get to real things. And again, they can be small, but just challenge some of these things rather than take them as hardwired. Right. Because they're not. Well, she's such a a beautiful example of how things are not hardwired, how you can take like a certain set of circumstances and absolutely blow it out of the water and, and live a different life. You know, I mean, that's hundred percent. You are the living embodiment of that. Yep, a hundred percent. And I right. want you to like. This is another assignment. Like, do I want you to one do one thing every month for this next twelve months to celebrate that? Yeah, because it is again. Like I, it, it, the words feel empty, but like the you are remarkably resilient. Yeah, like, and you have done the work already. Yeah. Anything you did else. the work, but without any, any help, exactly. without any uh, guidance, without any foundation, you did the work. Mm-hmm. You knew what was right when there was nothing right about your life. Right. Right. I interrupted you. Sorry. No, that's, that, I'm glad you did. That's beautifully said. Totally. It's, um, you need to celebrate that. Anything else is bonus. You know what I mean? Like you're just growing for the sake of growth now, which is awesome and exciting and cool. You, you did it. That's yeah. I think the thing that isn't getting actually interested. That's super interesting. I think that's the missing piece. Celebrating that you did it. Yeah. And I think like, I've been, I'm, I've been like kind of hemming and hawing about whether to like, just start talking about this because I'm, I'm trying, I'm writing about it right now. So it's like not fully formed, but I'm really obsessed right now with like 
our stories, right? Like the stories that we appreciate in humanity, just in general, are stories that have variation and different color and like drama and failure and success and, you know, embarrassment and that, you know what I mean? Like we don't actually value pristine stories. We value bumpy ones, you know, pristine stories are boring. (laughs) They're not, they're not, it's not, that's not about, that's not experience. That's not life. It's not like, it's like, okay, cool. You, you, you grew up rich and you never had to have a job. Okay. Like, (laughs) yeah. What did, tell me what you struggled with. What was your biggest loss? What really brought you to your knees? What made you think twice about everything you thought you believed? Like those are things that like make people and things and objects interesting. Right. They're layered. They're complicated. They're yeah. Right. There was um, this hidden brain episode yesterday uh, where they talk about like the, the valence of objects Mm -hmm. and how like objects can become very like weighted with these hilariously intense meanings and values that don't actually appear in them. So the example that they used was this guy who got like a grill at a, at an auction or a yard sale or something. And there was an embalmed human foot in the Ah. (laughs) grill. Ah. And then the, there was this crazy story about the origin of the foot. And then the foot became the valuable thing and it was auctioned off for like millions of dollars or something. I can't. So it was just like, we value stories because of these crazy things, not because they're pristine. What is the, um, I, I've asked you this before, um, that, that Asian art of the Kintsuji. And that's when something's broken, like making the repair beautiful with the gold. Yeah. 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 So they use gold lacquer to repair the pottery and they, they first use clear lacquer just because it was necessity. You have one plate and you need to fix it. So you, you lacquer it together so you can still use it. And then they started saying like, oh, let's make this pretty. So they use gold lacquer and then the broken bowls became more valuable than the bowls that hadn't been broken, which is a beautiful metaphor for us. You know, like this, this idea of like, we are going to all make it through life unbroken is not, that's not the right one. It's where are your cracks and how did you fix them? You know, what kind of glue did you use to put yourself back together? You know, like the other thing is that because of this, like, I think the thing with objects is really interesting because it shows the way that our narrative is always partly given over to other people in ways we totally can't control. So someone's going to listen to this podcast, listen to your story, see themselves in it and learn to celebrate themselves in a way they never have or feel less alone in a way they never have. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you are here in this world for a reason. And that reason is beyond what you can understand. And it's already taking place. Exactly. When she said she, her, her line of work is child welfare. I'm sure she's doing that every minute of every day, Mm -hmm. providing a bright light for these children. Right. Which is what she decided she was going to do in second grade. Right. And I believe, I'm sure that it started then. And I'm sure that there are kids that remember you from second grade who are saying, oh my God, if it wasn't for this person, I would never have done this, or I never would have believed in myself or whatever, you know? Right. That's making sense. Yeah. You've made sense of it. You just have to change the lighting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now tell me about like, um, the aces and the, yeah attachment stuff. I mean, we talked about the attachment stuff, but yeah, let's talk about aces. 
Okay. Aces and pieces. <laughs> and pieces. <laughs> um, like I said, I don't know if that's how people are pronouncing it. Um, it's only been around since 2019. I've never heard anybody say it out loud. All right. Aces are adverse childhood experiences. So let me tell you about this, this, the way the studies were created. And here's what we're not going to do with this information. <laughs> We're not going to use it to uh, decide that our life is shit or that it's worthy of shame or that we're going to die young, right? That's too reductive and it's also bad science. So let me explain the science so we actually have this idea. Um, I hope this person's therapist adequately explained the quiz when she gave it to to this person, but probably didn't. So let's do that. Okay. So... um, from 1995 to 1997, the Kaiser Permanente Health Organization, that huge insurance company, decided that they wanted to look at whether there might be a correlation between certain kinds of childhood experiences and your later health and well-being. So they took 17,000 members of their insurance plan from Southern California and wanted to look at what their childhood looked like. The hypothesis was that there are many different like pivotal life experiences that could contribute to disease and early death. And that adverse childhood experiences might be one of these pivotal life experiences. So they built the study to see if there's any correlations. It's good to pause for a second and just emphasize correlation is not causation. So please don't assume that there's a direct link between any of these childhood experiences and death, right? That's too reductive and false. Okay. But what, to what end to raise people's premiums? Like, I don't know what they're, I mean, they, they said it was about prevention, right? So they wanted to prevent certain childhood experiences because since we don't focus on, we don't think that mental health is legitimate or connected to physical health. They were trying to kind of work against some of that. Okay. That's what they say. I don't know what their actual stake was, but yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Probably to reduce. <laughs> and you will pay more. <laughs> right. Right. Um, it's also actually really interesting. This the the results of their original study have never been made public because they say they're still working with them. But I think that's interesting study design. So anyway, they came up with three categories of what they call adverse childhood experiences and then subcategories underneath. So there's 10 total experiences that they screened for. So the three categories are abuse, household challenges, and neglect. Under abuse, they have emotional abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse. Under household challenges, they have mother who is treated violently, substance abuse in the household, mental illness in the household, parental separation or divorce, and an incarcerated household member. Under neglect, they had emotional neglect and physical neglect, right? So they just kind of picked these 10 things that they wanted to look at, and then they were going to try to see whether that led to, whether there was a correlation, right? Again, not a direct causal link. No one could figure that out. Whether there was a correlation between those kinds of experiences and health. Um, and it showed that there is a correlation between these early life experiences and negative health and well-being outcomes. So people who experience more adverse childhood experiences also tended to have more injuries, more struggles with mental health, and also maternal health, and they had more addiction and chronic disease. So to get down into the numbers, two-thirds of the people who participated had at least one adverse childhood experience, 87% had more than one. Wow. 
so the general takeaways from the very first study, and there've been like 500 papers written about that, like literally 500 papers, probably more. Um, childhood trauma is very common, even in employed white middle-class college educated people that have great health insurance, right? So part of also what they were doing was trying to show that childhood trauma is not restricted to poor areas where minorities live, right? Okay. Um, there was a link between childhood trauma and adult onset of chronic disease, as well as depression, suicide, and either being violent or being a repeated victim of violence. Um, more types of trauma increase the risk of health, social, and emotional problems. And people usually experience more than one type of trauma. So rarely is it only sex abuse or only verbal abuse. You typically have many more than one. A couple of study limitations, just to point them out, there's more than this, but this is this is part of what I do is always look at what a study, how a study was limited, just because I research research. So um, study, the study was completed in 1997, right? So we're looking at a time period and that's relevant because, well, for lots of reasons. 71% um, of the participants were white. So it's not a super diverse study. That was actually kind of, as I said, part of the study design. They wanted to show that childhood trauma doesn't restrict itself to like poor minorities, of course, but that's relevant as a limitation. The study only includes 10 types of trauma, right? So like we're only looking at 10 things. Mm -hmm. um, and then the study, so the this isn't a study limitation. This is like an interpretation limitation. Um, the ACE study only looks at life from zero to 17. They were only trying to look at that one slice of your life. And the original members, if you go back and read the very first paper, they hypothesized that there's many other parts of your life that influence positively and negatively your health and well-being. So this was never meant to be used in the way that it is now, where people Google them, they Google the ACE study, they take the quiz and they say, I'm going to die at 52. Boom. Right. And right. it's like, no, no, no. We need to like contextualize everything. So, um, okay. So that's ACEs. What are you thinking? <laughs> that, I mean, it's such human nature. Like, I, you know, I heard about it on the podcast and of course I Googled it immediately and wanted to see like, right. you know, what my score was right. like, you know, totally. So they, so these things are put out in the world and they're kind of like sound bites with no explanation or context and everyone runs with them or right. people can run with them. They can be a helpful tool. Absolutely. But, totally. not but only always. when they're used the right way, any tool can be a weapon, right? So right. Like a lot of the time I'll have a client who will come in and say, I'm disorganized, attached. I have a 10 A score and I'm fucked. And then we need to spend <laughs> six months unraveling, like forget about what actually happened and went down. We got to spend six months looking at those three things and why they don't determine who you are. That's interesting. So that takes away from the, yes, the actual the truth. process. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying this is what's happening with this letter writer, but just that I see that a lot. And that's a kind of a, a side effect of misusing data like this. I can see it being helpful. Like when, you know, maybe when you're trying to get someone to understand, you know, what's happened to them and the impact of it. Totally. And, and exactly. And legitimize their experience. Right. And also contextualize it in terms of you're not alone. It's a, it's a great tool. It's just been misused. Right. Um, so is the attachment style stuff, right? Like people like grab something from an internet meme and they're like, this is how I am in relationship. And it's like, hold on, there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes into all that. And also like what, yeah, anyway, that's a whole thing. Sorry. Um, <laughs> 
Okay, so in 2019, um, researchers at Johns Hopkins published results from their first ever large-scale study looking at PCEs, positive childhood experiences, that act to counter traumatic experiences. Um, And I just want to point out here that it took 22 years to look and see if positive experiences have an effect on wellness. Wow. Right. So like we, we, we get the negative thing and then we run with that for 20 years. And that makes a huge difference in terms of the way people are like treated right in the health field. So that's just important. People have been talking about this for a long time and they've been studying resilience, but it's, this isn't codified in the same way until 2019. So these researchers wanted to see if having positive childhood experiences might mitigate some of the effects of adverse childhood experiences. So the idea being that positive experiences actually increase resilience. Mm -hmm. So, and I think where this might go as we continue to study in the next 20 years is that it's actually a positive thing to have some adverse childhood experiences mixed with the right positive childhood experiences so that you actually then learn resilience. Because if you only have positive experiences, you might not be resilient because you don't have any challenge. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So they found there is indeed a positive correlation between PCEs, I'm calling them pieces, in childhood and good mental and physical health in adults. And the effect is actually dose responsive, which means that the more positive childhood experiences you have, the bigger the effect on your health. So they identified seven positive childhood experiences. And these I think are super exciting because they give us both a way to contextualize our own experience and also a way to be there and help other kids who are dealing with stress right now. Um, The first is the ability to talk with your family about your feelings. The second was the felt experience that family is supportive during difficult times and struggle. The third is enjoyment in participation in community traditions. So stuff in your town or at school or whatever. The fourth is feeling of belonging in high school in particular. And that doesn't mean like you need to be a popular kid. It's that you belong somewhere in chorus with friends, whatever it is. Um, The fifth is feeling of being supported by friends. The sixth is having at least two non-parent adults in your life who care. Um, And the seventh is feeling safe and protected by an adult at home. So the more of these experiences you have, the more of a mitigation effect you'll have for the adverse childhood experiences. That's cool. Right? Yeah. I love that. And those are all like, this isn't like that seven positive childhood experiences aren't like that. You are very wealthy, that you never struggle, that you, whatever, you know what I mean? It's like that you're able to talk with someone about your feelings, that you can feel supported, that you have some kind of connection outside your home, you know, right. That you have adults in your life. They could be teachers. They could be neighbors. They could be other family members that are not your parents who care about you. Right. Um, those are huge. And it's interesting that like the, so the, the trauma is pathologized in the story. The trauma is made sense of, but the positive thing seems to be the thing that's sticking out to the letter writer. Like I had all these positive experiences. I'm not really sure how to integrate these two things. Well, given who you are, it makes complete sense that you've had both because you've got an incredible amount of resilience And it sounds like from what she said that she had many of these positive childhood experiences in addition to the also legitimate adverse childhood experiences. That is fascinating. I know, right? Pieces. Pieces, aces and pieces. (laughs) 
but it it also like I I think like be the be the positive childhood experience in someone else's life, which you've been doing since second grade. But but recognize it, name right. it, and if you need to be like if you need to go back to the language of deserving, this is why you deserve love because you've been a piece in some other child in many other children's lives. I love that. I know. We're so focused on the negative. Yep. It's not the whole story. I'm so glad you explained that. That's great. Yeah. It's so, it's so important. And I also think there's important takeaways for right now, because as we've been talking about like the pandemic and what do we do with kids who just went through this last year, right? If they were kids that also had to deal with divorce and then they've got the pandemic and they've got this incredible amount of stress and they're isolated from their social networks and they can't hang out with their friends. Like, oh my God, are they screwed forever? Absolutely not. Right. Right right? The important things you can focus on are are giving your kids a space to talk about their feelings, connecting them with other adults in the world who will care about them, making sure they feel like they are supported and not alone in it. Can you fix the pandemic? No. Can you make it so they go back to school? No, but you can make them feel supported in the house. You know what I mean? that you would want, you know, raising a child anyway, like, you know, they say it takes a village and you want to be, you want to have all these things. Yeah. Under any circumstances, you know? Right. Right. And I think like the, this is the other thing, like as since we, I always say this, we have, we, we are hardwired to imprint the negative and we have to manually imprint the positive. Mm -hmm. So put the trauma story down for a month, like really try to actively put that down for a month and focus instead and journal instead and think instead about all of the positive experiences you've had in your life. Not because the traumas aren't legitimate, but because you're going to already be thinking about them and imprinting them anyway, but they're not the whole story. Right. That's the lie that trauma is telling us. The the truth is that you've got tons of positive things too. So, so meditate on those journal about those. Think about all of the positive people and influences you've had in your life and that will give you an idea that you do have a place in the world and it does make sense. You know, that's perfect. Yeah. Aces and pieces. <laughs> <laughs> I like, love that. Can we just like, as a culture, like when you find something scary on the internet about yourself, especially if it's your psychological structure or whatever, go look for the opposite of it because it's probably out there. It's just not the thing you Googled. Okay. No, I think that's perfect. I think you covered it. Do you have a tiny little joy? I do. I have one that I forgot one. Do you know that I used the I used Paul Holes twice? You did? Yeah, I said that before. I have no like memory of that at all. It was like one of the first episodes, I think. But yeah. Oh. Super fun. Well, it's a good one. <laughs> we have to tag him. <laughs> um, my tiny little joy is that there is a how we moved into this house in um March of 2019. Mm-hmm. Back um to Boston from Virginia. And there was a house next door that um, it's been a little bit of a difficult situation in that it was under construction for about the first year. And then we went into the pandemic and then the owner of the house started uh, Airbnb, Airbnb, is that a verb? I'm going to make it a verb, the house. And, um, you know, during a time when you weren't supposed to, and it was a lot of like young kids that were having parties in the midst of pandemic. And it got to be a very stressful situation. And one positive thing that came is as a result, the whole neighborhood kind of got together and we wrote a letter to the mayor and to city councilors and the problem had been, was addressed. 
efficiently and effectively, which was great. And then the house went on the market and a brand new young couple bought the house and they're wonderful, lovely people. And they moved in this past weekend. And um, it's really nice to feel that kind of energy coming from Mm. that place, which felt pretty negative since oh, the, I love that. Yeah, the entire time that we've lived here. So just even looking out the window or walking by the house and knowing that this um, these lovely people have purchased it and they're going to make it their home. And it's um, it's just been a complete kind of energy shift in the neighborhood, which has been really nice. And I'm excited about it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks. It's such a good, like, because those, the, I mean those experiences feel so like hopeless when you can't do anything about the situation that's like in your living space, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially the past year, it just felt like a huge, like everyone was at home and they wanted to feel safe. And when you can't feel safe in your own home, it's, yeah, it's kind of a deal breaker. So um, to have that situation turn around and um, turn out the way that it has is, is exciting. Um, Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Mine is just cinnamon scones that I made. I have this recipe. Oh, what? <laughs> cinnamon scones. It's like the easiest, dumbest recipe in the world. If you can make cookies, these are even easier. Um, and it's just like delightful. Remember those, what were they called? Those donut muffins from that gluten-free place in where I lived in what? Not Yeah, in Watertown. Yeah. They're like that. There's a, you know what? There's a gluten-free bakery in uh Cambridge that reminds me of that place in Watertown. Oh, what is it called? Uh Vi- Violet, Violet gluten-free, Violet gluten-free. But same, same kind of situation. But yeah, that was the craziest delicious. experience. I mean, that's like an old tiny little joy, but literally a half a block from my house in a very residential area that did not have like storefronts for a couple of blocks, there suddenly opened a gluten-free bakery. Like <laughs> What? It was like a gift from the heavens. It was. It was like, <laughs> oh no, this is I'm gonna give these people all my money. Yeah, exactly. And they've seen clothes, I think, which is sad, but I know, I know. Should look them up, see what happened to them. They used to sell out like in minutes. Yeah. This place does too. And they send emails like no more, you know, these are sold. They do like donuts, they do pop tarts, gluten-free pop tarts. Like, what? Oh, that's insane. Stuff that you never thought you'd have again. Yep. Well, that's the thing. I think that's part of the thing with the scone is that it feels like a, like baked goods are so important to people who (laughs) have to be free because like pastry things are not like, that's all gluten. You can't eat that stuff. So. Right. Yeah. These are delicious. Yay. All right. You have to share the recipe. I will for sure. It's really easy. All right. Hey, if you have a passion for helping others and you want to create a more meaningful career or add to your current skill set, it's time to become a life coach with Lumia. When I became a life coach many years ago, there wasn't anything like this. So I developed this program alongside with Noelle Cordeaux, Lumia Coach Training. And it's amazing. It's 100% live and online, meaningful, evidence-based education, real people, real community, ICF accredited to with 20 diverse instructors in a thriving alumni community. Go to theangrytherapist.com and click on Become a Coach and explore Lumia Coach Training. I'll see you in class.